0: she you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible as so we begin a three-part mini-series on this important chapter of Hebrews. Contrary to what skeptics say, faith is not believing in something that can't be proven. As we say in the, in the South, that's hogwash. Christianity is based upon historical evidence, incredible, reliable eyewitnesses and certain undeniable facts. Our faith is a reasonable faith which can be tested. But as followers of Jesus, we have known crises in our lives, crises that have helped to develop and to deepen our conviction that the Bible is the word of God and that it is true. Please follow along as I read Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is God's Word. Father, once again, I would ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Desperation is an ingredient for faith. A woman with a 12 year bleeding problem grabbed onto the hem of Jesus' robe risking social backlash for she, an unclean woman, dared to touch a holy man. Friends of a crippled man dug a hole in a roof to drop him at Jesus' feet to seek healing for their friend. Weeks ago, Dr. Curry preached the passage of the scandalous woman who crashed a dinner party to anoint Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. Each of these were People in crisis. They were desperate. And in such situations, people take action. And when taken as a step of faith, it moves us from crisis to conviction, to strengthen our convictions to prepare for future crisis. Hebrews 11 is a marvelous passage filled with examples, tremendous examples of faith and courage. Verse 1 helpfully defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. We live in an uncertain world. Our fears and our anxieties long for assurance and comfort. People who suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder, otherwise known as OCD, have an excessive desire for certainty. OCD sufferers ritually perform habits of cleaning and checking and various other practices to satisfy a kind of inner need for order, health, and control. But it's really a fool's errand that only deepens and ingrains chemical imbalances in the brain and then reinforces habits that are time-wasting, counterproductive, and destructive. To overcome OCD, one must learn to live with uncertainty, that is to live by faith. I believe all of us have a kind of spiritual OCD where we are driven by our fears and our pride and our insecurity, craving for assurance in a crazy world, longing for eternal bliss. The Bible says that faith in Christ is the cure for spiritual OCD. As we receive lasting assurance to the certainty of God's promises, if we would live in a manner that is pleasing to God, live in a manner in which we would flourish without caving into our anxious fears, we must be people of conviction based upon the word of God. This morning I Aim to follow this passage with an outline of creation, fall, and redemption, a common paradigm that we find in Scripture and we see developed here in verses 3 through 16. In verse 3, the author of Hebrews affirms that we can only truly understand and fully embrace God's creation by faith. It's not self-evident. For a good hundred years or now, scientists have largely embraced the theory that the universe began 16 billion years ago with a Big Bang or some called a singularity, a a small point of of almost infinite amount of energy bursting forth and expanding into what is today some 10, 10 billion galaxies in existence. The rational mind observes that something does not come from nothing. And that which did not create itself must have a creator. Scripture clearly teaches what we call creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God did not use pre-existing matter, that creation did have a beginning by the command and will of God. But in a broken, fallen world, people can observe the same phenomena the same evidence and draw radically different conclusions. C.S. Lewis, in his Magician's Nephew, beautifully illustrates his principle as he has the Christ figure as the lion who creates the world of Narnia by singing it into existence. And as front row spectators, these, for, these people that form the, the first spectators form two different camps. The children and the cab driver are drawn to Aslan, to his power, his wisdom, and the beauty of all that he has made. But in contrast, there's the witch and Uncle Andrew who despise Aslan with fearful hatred, a prejudiced dismissal of him as creator and Lord. Faith enables us to see and interpret the world according to God's will. But the lack of faith leaves people in the dark, ignorant, and even hostile to a God centered understanding of reality. This past June, my sister and her family visited from Nevada, their first time out here in the 16 years we've lived in Lancaster, and we spent a day touring Washington, D.C., visiting the historic monuments. But we intentionally avoided the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Why? Because it is a monument to naturalistic Darwinism, unabashedly, unashamedly affirming the macro-evolutionary theory of man's origins. I find it, frankly, ridiculous and offensive, without a shred of humility, without real genuine inquiry as to the origins of the human race. The Smithsonian, like many other scientific institutions, assume a material universe with no ultimate intelligence. As if by magic, inorganic matter, over eons of time, formed miniature life forms, and through unguided processes and random mutations, evolved into complex organ systems and creatures. There's a lot of problems and holes with macro evolutionary theory. First of all, there's not enough time for it to happen. There is no clear mechanism for making it happen, for creatures to survive and reproduce. The paleontological record lacks transitional forms. There's really no real evidence to support this dogmatic theory that seems more intent on keeping God out of the creation equation. In the end, it's but a leap of faith lacks credible evidence. But for some people, creation and science and where the Bible meets modern assumptions is their entrance into crisis. I came to Christ my junior year of high school out of a crisis over my sin, fears and anxieties about the future, longing for forgiveness longing for meaning and direction. I was searching for someone other than myself to trust in. But after I'd been a believer for several months, I began to doubt. I hit a a mini crisis of doubt. I asked, what did I got myself into? Was Christianity even historically credible? Thankfully, I had mentors and friends who gave me books by C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell, to helped strengthen my conviction that Christianity was not only tenable, but the best explanation for life, purpose, where we came from and where we were going. Then a few years later, I took college biology and entered another crisis. As a very determined theistic evolutionist, I sought to merge Christianity with macroevolution in the classroom. Everything I understood about creation and the flood got turned upside down. And it took me a while pouring over resources that helped me to re-embrace Scripture as reliable, as true and adequate against the militant attacks of a secular culture. The aim to make science and human progress the measure of all things. Belief in biblical creation is not mindless assent. The evidence backs it up. But biblical faith and conviction are definitely required to endure the assaults of a secular age and to see and embrace God's view of reality. Secondly, the fall. In verses 4 through 7, We find examples of men who demonstrate the kind of faith that pleases God and they appear on the pages of Scripture immediately following the fall of mankind. Abel, Enoch, and Noah remind us that by faith we can live in a way that honors God, even as we contend with a sinful humanity and the sin in our own hearts. The author of Hebrews interprets the occasion in Genesis 4 the conflict between the first two brothers, where Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God because it was offered by faith. Well, how do we know that Abel's offering was by faith and Cain's was not? Well, some have suggested that's because because Abel offered his offering as an animal sacrifice, where Cain merely brought produce of the ground. But I reject that interpretation Because later on in the Levitical law, grain offerings and other produce are acceptable sacrifices to God. I believe the key is found in Genesis 4, where it says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. He did not bring any old offering, and he did not delay. He brought his best, his first, trusting God to provide much, much more. It was true sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, brought simply an offering. The leftovers. Nothing special. You see, crisis followed the fall on how to worship God in a manner that is pleasing to him. It turns out intention matters. Sacrifice matters. Faith matters in worship. Sadly, Cain will fail to humble himself as he receives a rebuke from God, but then go on to commit spiteful fratricide. Abel was a God-centered, innocent man murdered for righteousness and becomes a forerunner of Christ. Living in an evil age, Enoch pleased God and so was spared the curse of death. His life demonstrates that without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can be a good and moral person, well-liked and well-approved of by others, but fail to please God if your outward righteousness is merely natural virtue or coming from a self-righteous heart. People can do all kinds of good things, but from insincere motives doing good to appear good, to gain materially, to boast or feel good about ourselves do not merit anything in the sight of God. But verse 6 commends the man who draws near to God, first believing that he exists, but then also earnestly seeking him. Living as fallen, sinful creatures should humble us and convince us that we are condemned apart from God's grace. Doing good is good, but without faith, without a living relationship, it is impossible to please God. The fall also reminds us that we face the crisis of death. In my college biology class, I also faced a crisis over the Noah and the flood account. For some reason, I had burning questions over how did Noah build the ark? How did he fit the animals inside? Was it truly a worldwide flood? I had to spend time studying what believing scientists had to say and pouring over Scripture to overcome my doubts and strengthen my conviction that the Word of God is reliable and trustworthy at every point. But one could accept the historical record but still wonder how is it that God could wipe out the entire human race? save one family of 8 people perhaps you can pity the people who perished and believe that god is a monster but according to scripture the real monster is human sin rebellion and unbelief it's by faith that noah constructed the ark to save his family and the representatives of the land animals And so, doing so, condemned the world. He proclaims and verifies that God's ways are righteous, that his punishments are just, and that accepting the Bible's verdict strengthens our conviction and expresses our loyalty as to whose side we are on. And the magician's nephew, young Diggory Kirk, is given a command by Aslan to fetch a magical fruit that will serve for the protection of Narnia against the evil witch. Once he seizes the fruit, he is confronted by almost overwhelming temptation by the evil witch herself. With her smooth guile, she urges him to eat the fruit to gain its power and its youth-reviving properties, or if he won't consume it himself, to take it back home to give to his sick and dying mother she says these words. What has the lion ever done for you? That you should be his slave. And what would your mother think if she knew that you could have taken her pain away and given her back her life and saved your father's heart from being broken? And that you wouldn't. That you'd rather run messages for a wild animal in a strange world that is no business of yours. Look how heartless he has made you. That's what he does to everyone who listens to him. In the end, it was Diggory's conviction that saved him. To overcome the witch's smooth appeal to his own self interest, he had made a promise he would not steal or abandon his friend Polly, and he would have to accept mortality. And weakness, and even the death of his own mother, rather than seize knowledge and power in a forbidden way under curse. You see, the crisis of the fall tempts us to please self rather than God. But by faith, we can please God by looking beyond ourselves and our circumstances to trust Him who is faithful. And good. To keep his promises, to reward those who earnestly seek him, even if it means forfeiting temporal comforts. In prior months, the evangelical world was rocked by news that megachurch pastor and Christian author Joshua Harris was divorcing his wife and professed that he was no longer a Christian. He rightly concluded that his new convictions based upon worldly standards, were not supported by biblical Christianity. I at least respect his integrity for not trying to make historic Christianity something that it was not, that he had embraced something else. Unlike many, he did not try to force fit the Bible with modern assumptions. I've observed that Those who the apparent, professing committed Christian, who abandons the faith, is often seeking after the world's consolation. It's like they switch sides, and their sympathy and love goes to the world. It's jumping ship from the safety of the ark to the floodwaters below, like Esau, who traded away his birthright for a cup of stew temporal comforts are nothing more than temporary the fleeting pleasures of sin the approval of the world and self affirmation are pitifully and woefully fall short of eternity there will be crises that test our convictions we may say we hold to biblical conviction and so we face a rebellious teenager the betrayal of a spouse or a friend, financial disaster, a terminal diagnosis, the moral failure of a trusted leader. All of these things some more will test our faith and reveal whether our convictions will persevere or be exposed as being false, being washed out like a sandcastle at high tide. We have a choice. Whether to be washed out with the world or to stand on the firm bedrock of faith in Jesus Christ. In the days of Noah, there was one way to be saved. You had to be on that ark. And so it will be on the final day of God's judgment. There is one way to be saved, there is one way to escape the curse of this world and be punished for sin forever. Jesus is the ark. He is the refuge and shield from the punishment that we deserve. Thirdly, our redemption. By faith, Abraham obeyed the command of God to go to a strange land to receive his inheritance. He would leave behind his family, all that was familiar, his comforts, his network, a place where everybody knew his name because God would give him a new name and through him bless the nations of the world. God's plan of redemption flowed through this man of conviction. Abraham would dwell in tents, live in vulnerable surroundings, in rural dwellings, as he looked forward to a city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This man whose body was as good as dead, his wife who was past the age of childbearing, were promised more descendants than the stars in the heavens or the sand on the seashores. That must have been hard to believe, Abraham and Sarah having long given up hope of having children of their own. It astounds me to learn that there are actually more stars in the known universe then there are grains of sand on all the seashores of the earth. The estimated number of stars is like in the order of one followed by 21 zeros. Unimaginable. The greatness and power of our God. And this is the God who fulfilled his promise to bless a 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah with Isaac, the laughing boy Isaac, who brought forth Jacob, who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. And the New Testament calls you and I sons and daughters of Abraham, not by natural descent, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Verses 12 through 16 go on to say that all of these people died in faith, not receiving the promises in this life, but were given eyes to see beyond As strangers in exile in this world, they look forward to a better country, not being attached to this world. Some might turn these examples into some great saints, but we are reminded that they were flawed men and women. In July, I had the privilege of presenting the gospel to 10 Muslim men, mosque leaders, And I very intentionally pointed out the areas where we disagree between Christian doctrine and Islamic belief. I pointed out that the Old Testament prophets were good men, faithful men, but flawed sinners in need of the redemption of Jesus Christ, who was the only perfect and sinless prophet. They respectfully disagreed, but it got their attention as we talked about many other ways in which we don't agree about the truth of God and redemption. Worldly religion seeks to make examples of the best of people to exhort us to live up to their standards. Hebrews will go on to commend these saints of old in the Old Testament, but the Bible makes it very clear they need a Savior just like you and I, and that Jesus is not just another example. And he is more than a prophet. He is the sinless Savior, He is the redeemer of all the earth, the only one through whom we are forgiven and reconciled to God. When God called Abraham, he promised to bless him and to, through him, bless all the nations. The Christian message is the only hope for the world. Sometimes the church has failed to be Christ's witnesses, Missing opportunities to expand the kingdom, and as church history tells us, incurs God's judgments. The church in North Africa, in the early centuries of the church was largely Romanized Christianity. But it failed to venture out and reach into among the indigenous peoples of North Africa, who centuries later failed in the spread of Islam. The Protestant Reformation was quite impactful, but even Martin Luther acknowledged that it really only reached into the urban elites, the educated and the business owners, and failed to penetrate deeply into the masses of the common people. Church attendance in Europe has been low for centuries. It's nothing new. I don't believe there ever was a converted or reformed continent, and its secularism persists today we face a world in crisis of mass migration, of more refugees in the world today than even during World War II, of failed nation states, growing social problems like fatherlessness, sex trafficking, and other terrible ills. Will we, those entrusted with The deposit of the faith in our time? Will we meet these crises with conviction? Will we send our people and resources to reach the unreached? Welcome the alien and the stranger to our shores. Witness to the growing number of unchurched people in our community. Will we resist the spirit of Jonah to hoard the gospel for ourselves? Or will we freely share it, the life-giving message of Jesus Christ, that all nations might know him? Today, we say goodbye to member Ruth Powers, a strong advocate for reaching the nations with the gospel. She and her husband, Marvin, started some 40 years ago, American Home Life International, a ministry that connects Christian families with foreign students coming to Lancaster for education and for learning English. Over those years, hundreds of students have been led to Christ, often coming from places where they were denied hearing the gospel message. Those of us who are redeemed, who have embraced the message of Christ in the heart, can't help but share it, to give it away. God's redemption is the greatest gift, and it is the best gift news on earth. And as a people of conviction, we labor to make it known, even when it brings crisis into our lives, when we send loved ones away to the foreign mission field, when we inconvenience ourselves to host a student, when we volunteer for a difficult ministry, when we disrupt an orderly church, when we welcome a stranger, and numerous other small sacrifices we make, which in the end are really no sacrifices at all, but the privilege we have to serve the one who came to sacrifice for us. This is our conviction. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, you have given us a firm foundation upon which we stand. We thank you for the bedrock of your word and Jesus Christ, the living word, whose name we lift up in praise. Amen.